Now hear from God's holy word, John chapter 1. Pay close attention. This is God's inspired word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we praise you for the word made flesh. We praise you that you have sent to us our Savior, Jesus, who is our King and Savior. And now as we reflect on his incarnation and the glory and the wonder of what it means for our Savior to have taken on our human nature, our human frame, what that means for us, Father, we fall to our knees and we give you thanks and praise for all these things. So direct us by your Holy Spirit as we meditate on this today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I can't tell you how much I appreciate so many of you have been telling me this morning. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. Some of you have been praying for me since Friday. Uh, I was, I've been wiped out by this uh, cold or sickness or whatever this is. I just call it the plague. So if I don't shake your hand today, it's because I love you. I love you so much, I'm not going to shake your hand or hug you, uh, but I, I really do appreciate your prayers. And I'm feeling it this morning because I feel like I can, uh, I feel like I'm going to make it. So, uh, so continue to uh, pray as you can. Each year when Christmas rolls around, there's a specific catalog of secular songs and movies and TV specials that accompany the season every year. Some of the songs, I'm talking about the secular songs, some of them are fine. Some of them don't make a lot of sense. Like there's this whole category, this whole, this whole list of songs that are just about winter, that have nothing to do with Christmas whatsoever. Walking in a winter wonderland, uh, uh, jingle bells, uh, baby it's cold outside, whether you like the content of that song or not. These songs, it, it, they're not about Christmas at all. They're just about it being cold. And so we should sing these songs in February, not in December you know, when it's still 60 degrees outside some days. Um, but, but that's fine. That's okay. But then there are these movies and cartoons which have become part of our cultural fabric. They're, they're aired every single Christmas on television without fail. Children watch them and grow up and watch them with their children. And now even to the third and fourth generation, people are enjoying these same Christmas specials. And two of them stand out to me as not only being iconic, but extremely similar in their messages and themes. The first is uh, Charlie Brown Christmas from 1965, and the second was How the Grinch Stole Christmas from 1966. It's fascinating that both of these have been on television every single year for about 50 years. Both of them have memorable music. Both of them 
are grounded in a very popular, beloved, larger body of work, but whether it's Charles Schultz's uh, Peanuts comics or Dr. Seuss's books, both have essentially the same message. Both of them have essentially the same moral. That is, materialism is bad, and you can celebrate Christmas without stuff, you know, because Christmas really isn't about stuff. That, that's the message, I think, the takeaway from both of those. You know, Charlie Brown's shabby little tree is much better than your really big, beautiful tree that you spent way too much money on. Charlie's sister and his friends who talk about what they want for Christmas, well, they're just being really greedy and selfish, and they don't know what they're talking about. The, the Who's down in Whoville in the Grinch, you know, they're all prepared for the feast with their obnoxious instruments and their loud toys and their roast beast. But take that all away from them, and, you, and, and you'll still find them the next morning singing a nonsense song, holding hands around a tree, because that's, after all, what Christmas is really about, you know, singing a nonsense song around a tree in the snow. Uh, now, the Charlie Brown show, I think, I, I think it deserves some credit for Linus reading from Luke's gospel, and I'm very, I'm sincerely thankful for that, uh, that that still makes it on television every year. But the overall message seems to be that the more disconnected you are from the material world, the more you can separate yourself from creation, the better and more pious and more morally pristine your celebration is. Now, I'm not sure what Christmas was like in the mid-60s. I wasn't there. But um, someone somewhere believed that the nation's children needed this animated one-two punch to teach them this, this lesson, this moral. And I'm not even sure that anybody really takes it to heart. I'm not, I'm not sure anybody believes that we still need these annual reminders. And by the way, I'm not simply picking on these two cartoons, some of which I, you know, we've watched over and over, and you may really enjoy, and that's, that's okay. Not just these two, but this message is pervasive. This message is broader than just these two shows. And I'm not sure that this message really effectively changes anything other than perhaps maybe giving us a little twinge of guilt for filling our shopping carts in December. And might I add that we fill those shopping carts full of things to give away to other people. We go buy food to share with other people. Who wants to pour cold water on that? I'm not, I'm not sure I understand that and have ever understood that. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but is this truly a Christian message? This divorce from creation, this separation from the material world, finding a true pious experience in divesting ourselves of all of the, uh, of the material trappings of celebration. Is, is that message, is that truly a Christian message? Or is that a message that could be just as easily embraced by a Marxist or a Buddhist? Doesn't that, doesn't that, on reflection, doesn't that sound, that, that criticism of commercialism or that criticism of capitalism, doesn't that sound something more suited to, you know, kind of a Marxist Christmas than a Christian Christmas or a Buddhist Christmas? Is the real message, and this is what I'm asking, is the real message of Christmas something about a departure from the material world and is true contentment and rejoicing found not with toys and food and good drink, but is true contentment found in divorcing ourselves from physical things and ascending to some non-corporeal place of contentment? Now, 
certainly, I have to back up and say this, there is such a thing as materialism, and it is a great wickedness. The temptation to find comfort and pleasure in the created thing alone without giving any honor or praise or thanksgiving to the creator, that is an evil. That is wickedness. To live as if there's no other world outside of the material, as if there's no spiritual realm. To live as if there's no future judgment. And to idolize wealth and to idolize status in such a way that you equate riches in this world with God's favor and God's pleasure, that that is an evil and must be corrected. So materialism is a real and present evil even in the church. Uh, Some of the most popular Christian celebrities today are prosperity preachers whose private jets and mansions are proof to their followers that God's special favor rests with them. They have no room for a theology of suffering in their books or in their teachings. There's, there's no, where, did, where do you find a place for the cross in their teaching? And so the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus have scalding warnings for those whose faith lies in their riches or whose faith lies in their worldly influence or power. God promises, as we've seen all throughout the month of of Advent and the Sundays of Advent, we've seen God promises to undermine all of that in the day of judgment. He's going to cut the feet right out from under materialism and finding your worth and your value in in things rather than in your creator. So we have, to, we have to correct that. But in response to materialism, it would be a gross overcorrection to then say that the entire message of Jesus, the entire lesson of the incarnation is a separation from the material world, that that truly is salvation. Salvation is separation from creation. No, not at all. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is God's embrace of the material world and humanity. In John's gospel, we read just a few minutes ago that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the word of God is the creator. He made all things. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Find anything in the cosmos that doesn't have its origin in Jesus. Jesus made all all things. He is the word that God spoke that created all things. And not only that, this eternal word of God has become flesh. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So this thing that we celebrate at Christmas is God giving to a virgin girl named Mary a child whose name was Jesus. His birth into the world means that God has entered creation physically and he has entered human history bodily. The, the second person of the Trinity, the word, has become a man. He's become One of us, the God of creation and the God of the Bible then is not some vague general abstraction. He's not some divine presence without a face or a name. But the God of the Bible has presented himself to us as a man, a single human being embodying the personal love of the personal God. Very God of very God, yes, but also man. And he carries in his body the experience of being a creature. He absorbs the sorrow of the world and the pains of the world. And all of this he carries with him to the cross. Now, I should just stop there. We should just kind of meditate on that for a while. 
but that would um, counteract what I'm actually trying to achieve today, uh, which is it's not just about what we think, but about what we do. This truth, however, is such a, a, a so full of wonder and mystery that I can hardly conceive of it, much less express it, that in the incarnation, in the incarnation, God gives us himself in the man Jesus. And so he doesn't simply pick a man out of the human race to speak for him. God becomes a man living among Adam's race. And when he ascends, when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, he remains a man, which means that now there is a resurrected, glorified man on the throne over all creation. Last week we saw that Adam turned all that over to Satan. Oh, it was Christmas Eve. We saw Satan uh, took over creation, that Adam abdicated his role over creation. But now all of that has been fixed. Jesus, a man, is now over creation. A man sits enthroned over the cosmos. All of heaven and earth is under his domain. He is the one whose body bears the wound of, of the iron nails in his hands and, and the wound of a wooden spear in his side. This is the same man who at a specific time and a specific place in the created world, he laid in a manger. Uh, the, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, the little Carol says, you better bet he cried. I know he cried because he was a baby and there's nothing sinful about a baby crying. He cried and he was hungry. He learned how to walk. He learned how to speak. In the gospel reading this morning, we heard that he, he learned obedience. He grew in stature and in favor with God and with men. He, he learned how to obey and submit to his earthly father and mother. He learned how to love his brothers and sisters. He learned how to sit still in the synagogue and listen to the scriptures being read and taught. He learned how to work with his hands. He learned self-discipline over his human nature and all the way did it perfectly without sin, without error. He ate the Passover. He went up to the temple on festival days. He was baptized by John with real water and took up the duty, the calling of the Son of Man, Messiah, King and Savior of the world. So because of his embodied work as a man, as as the incarnate Savior, when he re-enters the presence of the Father, when Jesus goes back to the throne room of heaven, he doesn't do it by himself. Because of the way that he has joined himself with humanity, so now when he goes back to the presence of the Father, his people go with him into the presence of the Father. And his people reign with him over all creation. What does Ephesians 2 say? It says that he has raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so by coming down to us, he has lifted us up to him. By coming and becoming a man, he has made us uh, uh, rulers and kings and queens over creation. And now by his spirit, he dwells with his people and he dwells in his people and his people dwell with God. And all of this is made possible because of this extraordinary, glorious, amazing, mighty act of God in the incarnation, in the word being made flesh and dwelling among us full of grace and truth. And lest we think that when we open up the gospels, this is all of a sudden God doing something that he's never he, he's, 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 it's out of character for him, that he's really um, 
he really doesn't care about the world. He really doesn't care about humankind until Jesus. No, the whole story of the Bible from Genesis on is the story of this dialogue and this interaction between God and his creation, God and his creatures, the people that he made. The first chapter of the Bible isn't God all by himself ruminating on timeless truths. That's not the first chapter of the Bible. The first chapter of the Bible is God speaking everything into being. The first chapter of the Bible is God creating the world and man. And he puts spirit into the life. He put his spirit of life into man. And he calls man to come obey him. He, he wrestles with man. He puts him through his paces. He matures him. He puts his name on him. So our God, the God of creation, is known by how he deals with his creation and with his people. And ultimately, of course, he takes on human nature himself. But let it never be said or never be thought that God abhors humanity or abhors his creation. He embraces his creation to redeem it. Now, now despite this, now despite the scriptures... And, and despite the vital importance of the incarnation to the gospel message, the church has always had to guard against and fight against the heresy of Gnosticism. And if you haven't come across that word before in your reading, that starts with a G. It's a silent G. It's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. And it comes from the Gnostics. Uh, these, uh, the, the Greeks who had this mystery religion. Gnostic and Gnosis refers to having knowledge. And so the, there were these mystery religions in ancient Greece that believed in salvation through a secret knowledge. And the primary tenet of their religion is this philosophy that drives a wedge between the realm of the spirit and the realm of creation. The Gnostics believed that all matter is evil and then the non-material spiritual world is good and more to be desired. So the more spiritual you are, the more you're going to remove yourself from the material aspects of life. You're going to remove yourself from food and drink and comforts and other people and, and all, all kinds of outward expression of, of joy or contentment or learning. You, you, you retreat into yourself and you retreat into your own head. Now, over the first couple centuries of the church... Christians picked up on Gnosticism and wrongly believed. They were in error, and they believed that, that it was consistent with the Christian message. Of course, Gnosticism wreaks all kinds of havoc on the doctrines of the Incarnation and on salvation itself. So Gnostics had to work around this idea that the Word was made flesh, and they had to do mental gymnastics to make Jesus out to be a, a spirit or an angel, but not really a man. Because to their thinking, if you just follow their thinking, if all creation is bad, then why would God enter human flesh? Why would God have anything to do with that? If it's all bad, God is perfect. He's a spirit. And so he would never join himself to something that was so corrupt and weak and not worth saving. One ancient Gnostic heretic said, Mary didn't bear Jesus in the normal way. Jesus was really never born of Mary, but the Holy Spirit shined through her the way light shines through a painted window, a painted glass. And so the reflection on the floor is essentially what we get from Jesus. It's just reflection shined through Mary. It's all kinds of, 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 of mystic, uh, weird stuff that they, they come up with to try to get around the incarnation. 
Well, this came up very early in the history of the church. As early as John's first epistle, the church is working to counter this and correct this. Here's what John writes in his first epistle. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John is testifying Jesus was a man. We touched him. We embraced him. We ate together. We drank together. We slept out under the stars together. We traveled together. Thomas put his hand into the Savior's side. Even after his resurrection, he was real. He was physical. He was incarnate. He was a man. And despite the testimony of the gospel writers and the apostles, Despite the work of the early church fathers and the councils and all their combat against the heresy of Gnosticism, it still persists today. Now, it's in subtle ways. We set up all these false dichotomies between, uh, between uh, body and, and spirit, between uh, the material world and, and the spiritual world. And we don't think through it very clearly. And what this works out to achieve is the suspicion of the church and the suspicion of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These, these suspicions that, oh, this, this is just material stuff. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything. And the fact is, this this Gnostic tendency is in some ways more pervasive and more dangerous than the error of materialism. Now again, I state materialism is a great wickedness, but Gnosticism is way more subtle. You see, everyone sees materialism for what it is because materialism is right out in the open. Greed and excess are all easy to identify. Come on, even Charlie Brown knows what excess looks like, right? He can see it. But Gnosticism, this rejection of God's good creation, which leads inevitably to a rejection of the incarnation and our own humanity, is so much more subtle. In fact, it sounds so much more pious when you come across it. The Gnostic won't eat that. The Gnostic won't drink that. He won't indulge the pleasures of the flesh he says. The Gnostic is so self-disciplined, or so he appears. The Gnostic isn't isn't concerned with the trivialities and trifles. He's so much more serious, so erudite, because everything is a construct. Everything is an abstraction. Right living for the Gnostic is all about getting your head sorted out, your thoughts, and, and, and producing an articulate Uh, acceptable articulation of those thoughts. It's separating yourself from things and living in your head. But the gospel has never been about just getting your head sorted out or God God sending an idea. That's not what it's about. That, That God has sent an idea and if we just figure out this idea, if we just figure out this puzzle, then we'll be okay. We'll be saved. No. God sends his son as a man. Truth is found not in an abstraction, but in a man. Righteousness is not a theory or a thought, but a man. God sends a man to redeem all of human life and all society, to be Lord and King over all people, over all of our lives, over all that we do with our bodies and creation. This this subtle Gnostic tendency divorces everything from creation. It unwinds the incarnation, which which is why we have to fight against it with as much fervor and strength and attention as we do guard against materialism. So maybe one day one of our talented young artists will grow up and write the great anti-Gnostic Christmas special, and I'll get to see that one day, the great incarnational Christmas special. 
uh, you know, the, maybe the Who's in Whoville are all trying to get ready for Christmas by silent meditation, you know, fasting and, 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 and uh, abu- you know, kind of uh, uh, divorcing themselves from all, all creation. And then instead of the Grinch, you have a fat, jolly man with a big belly laugh. He comes and says, what are you doing? This is not the way to celebrate Christmas. You need ham and wine and lights, and you need toys that, that require batteries. That's how you do it right. That's how you really celebrate, and that's how you really rejoice in the incarnation. Now, I know that any time I talk about this, and I know that, that any time we, we explore this view of our humanity and the created world, a few verses pop into your heads that use the word world and use the word flesh uh, for something that's undesirable. That's not something we're supposed to embrace or admire. John, the gospel writer, said the word became flesh. But doesn't John's epistle also say, do not love the world or the things that are in the world? Absolutely. And furthermore, sure the flesh is bad and the spirit is good, right? I mean, that, that sounds like Gnosticism, but Galatians 5 says... For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another. Well, yes, it does say that. Absolutely. And I believe it. But whenever we read these words world and flesh, we need to do some careful exegesis and think about what we're reading. We don't read them through this Gnostic filter. But think, okay, what world is being talked about? When we read the word world, are we talking about planet Earth? Are we talking about all of creation, the universe? Are we talking about the world of people, the world of humanity? Or are we talking about the world of unbelief, the mass of humanity alienated from God, hostile to Jesus? Are we talking about the whole sphere of human culture, the riches, the pursuits, the systems, the seats of power, the governments and nations? Is that what we're talking about when we talk about the world? Well, I know what we need to do. We need to look at the Greek. Maybe the Greek has these words that have these subtle shades of nuance to tell us which world we're talking about. You know, we have different words for love. Maybe we have different words for world. Well, no, we only have one word for world, cosmos. That's it. And the inspired authors of the Bible use that same word cosmos for whether they're talking about the world, planet Earth, or whether they're talking about the world of human culture, or they're talking about the world of unbelief. But we do the same thing all the time. We talk about the world of finance, or Magellan sailed around the world, or I looked all over the world for my keys and couldn't find them. We use the word world just as broadly as they do. So so John tells us in his gospel, let's think through this. John tells us in his gospel that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And then that same John says in his epistle, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Well, which is it? I mean, if I'm to be godly, I need to love the things that God loves. And if God loves the world, should I love the world or not? Well, what do we ask? What world are we talking about? You see, in John 3.16, God loves his creation and the people he put in it. He loves it so much that he sent his son to redeem it. But there are elements of this world that we are not to love. There are elements of this world that we are not to be enamored with. So let's not just read the first part of John's epistle, but let's read the whole thought. He says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
The lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Okay, that's the world he's talking about. The world of unbelief, the world of rebellion against God, the world that is set opposed to Jesus, the world systems set against God, the worldly definitions of power and success, worldly values, that's the world we are to abhor as he does. And then, and then John continues, and that world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So it isn't planet earth that's passing away, but the world of unbelief, the old world of death and ignorance and darkness, that world is passing away. That's the world we reject. Context is key. In the same way, flesh sometimes refers to our bodies and sometimes not. Sometimes flesh refers to our sinful Adamic nature. So in the scriptures, for example, um, when you read about your heart, like guard your heart, um, that doesn't necessarily mean lower your cholesterol, right? I mean, when you say guard your heart, you're not talking about the muscle in your chest. You're talking about the seed of your affections. What do you love? What do you care about? Where, where, where are your goals and where, where have you set your affections? So, so sometimes the word flesh refers to our bodies and sometimes it refers to that part of us that we inherit from Adam, the dead part of us that is opposed to the spirit, capital S, God's Holy Spirit, which makes us alive. So you have places like Galatians where I just read about the flesh being at war with the spirit. But we also read other places where our fleshly physical bodies are mentioned in a positive way, like Ephesians. Husbands must love their wives as their own flesh. No man hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just like Christ loves the church. So if it's commendable to love our own bodies in a certain way and to love the bodies of our spouses, then... And, and that cherishing is an image of how Christ loves the church, then that means there's something good and right and holy about being grateful for our bodies as men and women created in the image of God and giving thanks for our humanity. So we don't hate when, when, we, uh, when we're being led by the scriptures to be suspicious of the will of the flesh and to be very, very thoughtful and concerned about the will of the flesh and what that is, it's not talking about our physical bodies, but our Adamic sinful fallen nature. You see, uh, by the way, this Gnostic impulse is present everywhere around us in the headlines in this way is to say, as moderns do, as our generation does, that bodies don't matter. The bodies don't matter at all. Whether you're male or female is really just, a, just a, 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 an emotion. It's something that's in your head. And your, your, your head could be female or your head could be male. And it's completely disconnected by, from what your, your physical frame is. Uh, that is a Gnostic tendency. That is Gnosticism in our, in our culture uh, to, to deny the created order. Instead, we say no bodies do matter and we are grateful. We are full of gratitude for the bodies God gave us. So, so the point of, of understanding this, when we read the word world and the word flesh, we don't introduce this dualism. We don't introduce this Gnostic tendency where the Bible hasn't put it. If you read the word heart, again, don't think, oh, that's the muscle of my chest, right? You don't think that. None of you think that. So when you read the word world, think, okay, which world? What, what is the context? Flesh. What, well, okay, is that the body or is that the part of me that I inherited from Adam that's at war with God's spirit? 
Well, it takes some thoughtful, careful exegesis to undo these bad effects and bad assumptions. But, but if we get this and we understand what God is doing in the incarnation, affirming creation and humanity, then the incarnation, the word made flesh, liberates us unto a proper appreciation for and use of God, God's good gifts in the world. We don't have to hate things. We don't have to worship things. We don't have to be enslaved to things. We take them up and we put them down and we give thanks to God in all things because Jesus took dominion over the material world. He is our head. So as his body, we have authority and dominion over the material world. It's, it's this kind of perspective that we must bring to Christmas every year. And that's why the church has had it right for a couple thousand years. There's not time in one day to do all the celebrating. You really need about two weeks, right? You need about 12 days. 12 days is just about perfect for all the fun you need to have to rejoice in the fact that Jesus uh, is God taking on human flesh to redeem humanity. Christmas is an annual assault on Gnosticism and all of its tendencies. Uh, Christmas is an annual uh, uh, initiative. It's warfare against Gnosticism. We sing and proclaim at Christmas that Jesus took on human flesh, which is an affirmation of humanity. It means that God loves mankind. He loves not theoretical men and women, not some image of a perfect man. He loves me. And he loves you and he loves your neighbors and your family members and your co-workers. Following that, if you and I are to be Christ-like and live in light of the incarnation, we don't retreat into some kind of Gnostic individualism, thinking that somehow our asceticism, you know, that denying the enjoyment of good things, that's what's going to preserve us from corruption. Uh, another error is to think that participating in gift giving and feasting is somehow an automatic contribution to our national problem materi of materialism or greed or gluttony. Don't despise giving. Don't be tricked into thinking that somehow giving is materialism. That's, who wants you to believe that? Who wants to throw cold water on your giving and your feasting? It's not the Lord Jesus. So that sounds like the work of the accuser, don't you think? Who, who else wants you to feel bad about that? You see, God gave himself to us. Jesus reigns over us and gives good gifts to men, we read in the scriptures. God our Father satisfies our mouth with good things, we read in Psalm 103. He gives oil and bread and wine in Psalm 140 or 104. So, so if we're to be godly, we give ourselves to each other. We give ourselves to other people. I exist in my body and have been given this body to serve you. And whatever God, God has given me and whatever gifts God has given me, he has given them to me so I can work for you and serve you. And so have you. You have been given bodies and capacities and faculties and gifts to give, to serve and lay your life down for each other and for your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members. Be grateful and demonstrate that gratitude by giving of yourself. Be default givers. When there's a call to action, I give. When there's a call for help, I give. That's who I am. I'm a giver. Make that your default setting. That is a war against the Gnostic tendency. Jesus entering the world not only shows us God's love for men and women, 
but it shows us his love for the created order, for the created world. The beauty and the wonder that he has built into the heavens above and the earth beneath, the mysteries and the majesties of plant life and, and animal life, the stuff you can only see in a microscope, he's put all that there for his glory. The Holy Spirit still broods over his creation and he uses his creation to show his favor to us and to demonstrate his grace to us. Most specifically, he uses water, real water, real bread and real wine to unite us to Jesus and to renew our covenant with him and to feed our faith, which is why we never practice baptism as if it's some Gnostic intellectual exercise where before you can be baptized, you have to think really hard about some mantra or you have to ascend to some transcendental plane or, or you have to give proof that you can articulate a theological formula. No, it's water from a faucet. I can show you where we get it. We pour it on you and under the authority of the church in the name of the Trinity, God uses that ritual act to unite you to Jesus. How does it work? By faith. I just believe that it does. I believe God uses it. Communion isn't an internal drill of contemplation and devotion. Uh, it, it's a liturgical act using real bread and real wine, which we eat and drink in God's presence. It's material stuff that God takes and blesses you with. He gives it to you and he feeds your faith. Christmas is a reminder that matter matters. The incarnation is a reminder that matter matters and God saves us with real stuff. And so that means we can't worship inside of our heads only. We can't rejoice inside of our heads. The incarnation is our signal to do as best we can with all that God has given us to break out and rejoice in and with the creation and the gifts he's given us. Don't go into debt. Don't be wasteful but break out the good stuff. Don't hold back. Don't shrink out of fear of overdoing it. We have seasons of rejoicing. We have seasons of feasting to remind us that whatever else is going on in the world, that God is good and evil doesn't get the last word. I, I'm, I'm running out of time, but I have to read this little part right here in Nehemiah, in the middle of Nehemiah. If you remember what he's dealing with, when Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem, the walls are all torn down. Everybody's living in squalor. There's oppression from outside. There's strife on the inside. And Nehemiah starts to rebuild the walls. And he, he says, now that we've rebuilt the walls, we need to rebuild society. We need to rebuild the people. And so there's a covenant renewal service right in the middle of the book of Nehemiah. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, no, don't weep, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. How do you respond to God's great deliverance and God's great protection over you? How do you respond when God puts down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of low degree, which is what is happening in the book of Nehemiah? What happens when God reignites his covenant with you and renews it with you? He says, okay, I get it. I understand why you're weeping because you've got a lot of guilt, but I want you to know you're forgiven. I want you to dry it up, dry up your tears. I want you to go get something good to eat. 
Get some good meat. Get some good drink. I don't want you to share gifts with each other. That's how you rejoice in God's mighty deliverance. So every Christmas, there are plenty of reminders and, and there are plenty of, of uh, callbacks to the doctrines of Charlie Brown and the doctrines of the Grinch. Plenty of false guilt, plenty of false piety, plenty of miserliness. But what best captures the spirit of the incarnation? And I'm talking about in the eyes of your neighbors, in the eyes of your coworkers and your family members, what best captures the incarnation? Stoicism? Asceticism? Is that what best captures miserliness? Is that what best captures the spirit of the incarnation? Or is the incarnation best reflected when the people who belong to Jesus make extended, public, joyful celebration with good gifts, good meat, and good drink, with thanksgiving that openly rejects both materialism and Gnosticism? And then not only to do that at the incarnation, but let's do it again at Easter. How about that? Let's do it again at the ascension and Pentecost and every opportunity we have to show everyone this is what it means to belong to Jesus. This is the happiest place on earth. The covenant is the happiest place on earth. This is the bountiful table. And boy, would we love for you to come sit down at this table with us and join us here to demonstrate to our children that our faith is not flight from the world, but our faith, our Christian faith, is a fight for the world, to reclaim it, to, to take over the world. Uh, that, that our children understand that in that me means the sacraments are real business. The sacraments are not empty signs that are all in your head that you can take it or leave it when you get too old to really believe it. No, baptism is real, young people, and that means you belong to Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's the message and that's the cash value of the incarnation. In Jesus, God has taken on human flesh to walk the earth and redeem all of it. The Christian message is neither a rejection of humanity or a rejection of the creation. The incarnation is about God fulfilling his promises to redeem man and man's home, to rescue it from the dominion of Satan and darkness and to set all things right. And we participate in that work of God by not rejecting or abhorring our humanity, not rejecting our creatureliness or God's good creation, but by thankful, festive, restful living in his good creation and in his mercies. Let's give thanks. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for Jesus once again. We thank you for the fact that you have made us men and women in your image and that you have given us gifts and faculties and, and all kinds of abilities to give ourselves to each other. You've given us great resources where we can serve each other and those who have less than we do. And so, Father, we pray that you would orient us toward each other and toward the creation as givers and servants, as you have demonstrated in Jesus, our Savior. So, Father, may our rejoicing continue in all of these ways throughout the Christmas season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.